0: So good evening, I'm just doing that very special pre-talk hearing practice where you try to figure out whether that sound was another p- person walking through the, the walking room or not. <laughs> it's a really intense kind of listening that happens at this point. So I, think, I think everyone's here. Anyway. So our last evening together, I feel a little, a little bit sad. But you might also be feeling quite full and ready to you know, take what you've learned away with you for some digestion space. So um, I'll add a few uh, pieces this evening, but hopefully they will um, slot in and make sense. And for many of you, they'll be visiting some familiar territory so, we've been um, talking a lot about grounding and safety, finding a, finding a safe and centered kind of place to dwell. And the, notice that uh, the body has been a theme that's really resonated with a lot of you. And then we've also been speaking a lot about patterns of reactivity and, and how to abandon them. And... People have been tasting, you've been reporting, tasting a lot of benefits of that. And one of the things that touched me this afternoon was uh, how there seems to be a growing sense of, of, of trusting, being able to trust the practice. And at the same time, there's also questions that come up. And there are two questions that have been kind of recurring in notes and in the things that people have asked in, in groups that I want to try to speak to a little bit uh, this evening. And so the first one goes something along the lines of, um, if I stop feeling the difficulties of life with such intensity as my reactivity diminishes, will I also lose my capacity for joy? And then the second one is something like, you know, isn't, isn't all this introspection a little bit too self-oriented, a little bit even narcissistic, and how does it relate to addressing the relational challenges in my life and and the issues that we face in society and even as a species together. So one, one little aside is that I find it interesting in my practice to notice when these kinds of questions pop up in the mind. Because if I'm honest about it, then sometimes these questions just pop up when I'm feeling a bit fed up and disgruntled with my practice and the mind starts to churn out all these justifications why it was really a bad idea or it doesn't make sense and so on. So just, you know, when these questions pop up, just seeing kind of what's causing them to surface at this moment. And sometimes it, it, that might give us a sense it's not the best time to go pondering them. But having said that, I don't want to dismiss them because they are, they're important questions. So hopefully what I'm going to say this evening will, will give some kind of response to that, although I don't expect it's going to fully sort out every last piece of, of uh, these issues. So coming back to uh, what Akinchino, um said about the heart-mind the other evening... But what are the qualities of this this chitta uh, that is receiving and registering our experience? That it, it's something that receives and resonates. It feels and it reacts to things with thoughts and impulses. And then it also has this quality of knowing, doesn't it? So, what happens, what becomes of this chitta when reactivity subsides? So, when there are hindrances present, these energies of, of sense desire and aversion, or lethargy, restlessness and worry, and restlessness and remorse is a, is a form that this hindrance often takes. When there's doubt or mistrust in the, in the heart mind, this feeling awareness, I was thinking the citta is kind of awareness on its own doesn't quite cover it all but the sense of it as being a feeling awareness it's restricted and it's cramped and it's limited we also mentioned this term the surpassable and unsurpassable as um, states that the chitta, that the heart-mind can be in but when the hindrances subside it becomes clear and bright so the famous simile that Akinciano also shared is about this the the heart mind being like a bowl of water in which one can um, clearly see the reflection of one's face but if it's if the hindrances are in there the water is as so if it's filled with dye or mud or covered over with algae or ripped whipped up by the wind or Boiling and bubbling, and we can't see clearly. But when the hindrances subside, there's this tremendous clarity to the mind. So this this freed heart is is characterized as clear and bright and flexible. One another another image that's used for it is it's said that it's wieldy or malleable. It's like gold that's been Uh, rid of its impurities and you can work it into any shape or form that you that you want it can see clearly there's a sort of unpolluted unmuddied knowing capacity and it can be described uh, it's described sometimes as the heart that's as wide as the world it's unlimited so A Heart as Wide as the World is the title, I think, of one of Sharon Salzberg's early books on loving kindness. Or you might be familiar with Christina's book, The Boundless Heart, on uh, these qualities that I'm going to talk about tonight. So this, this kind of free heart is available and it's capable of understanding, it's capable of the panya, the wisdom or discernment that Chris talked about last night and a kind of loving that's independent of of mere liking so it's still receiving and resonating but what emerges is a response rather than reactivity so this afternoon's sharing I think was testimony to how deeply we're affected by one another even when we're doing an apparently kind of inward looking and solitary activity like being on retreat, we're, re- we're really impacted by and touched by the presence of other beings. And in the, in the Satipatthana teachings, there's an aspect that we haven't so much explicitly spoken about on, on this retreat, where with all these uh, foundations of mindfulness, we're invited to notice them internally and also externally. And this kind of orients us to our common humanity. So there's an encouragement to look outwards as well as inwards with wisdom. So just as I, this body, I in inverted commas, I'm a collection of ever-changing sensations and uh, phenomena, The body sensations, the Vedana, feeling tones, perceptions, thoughts, emotions, and impulses, and the consciousness that's conditioned by all those things, so are you, you know. We tend to almost see ourselves as process much more easily than we see one another as process, don't we? Like, you know, I know that I'm this kind of amorphous blob of changing processes, but you're really, you know, this person just like how I've, I've decided you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But really, actually, if we're mindful of all this, there's nothing different about all these other bodies sitting in this space than this one. And just as this mind stream is prey to suffering, it's prey to greed and hatred and delusion, so are all other mind streams. And just as there's no solid, unchanging self here, there's no solid, unchanging self in any of you. And yet we do have this experience of identity of being, you know, we feel ourselves as a me and you feel yourselves as a you. And each of these uses experiences the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 of sorrows of life. Now, this is also part of our experience that we, we feel ourselves as a me. And we inhabit a relational world of myriad beings in relationship with one another. And we kind of need to hold both of these perspectives in mind. The fact that ultimately there's nothing solid here, but also that actually uh, we're moving in a, in a conventional world where we experience ourself, um, ourselves as selves. And this, these, holding these two things in mind enables a response informed by wisdom to this predicament. Rather than us just being driven by reactions to our kind of Vedana informed, Vedana provoked likes and dislikes of whatever that, you know, afflict whatever temporary manifestation of me happens to be arising in the moment. Yeah. So if we're not going to live in just a, a flood of reactivity, we need to live intentionally. And I think Chris phrased this as like, you know, mindfulness is really invites the practice of intentional living. And our primary intention is, has, has really got to be not to create more suffering for ourselves or for others, recognizing that all beings like me wish for happiness and to avoid harm. So this basic orientation of non-harming. And this is really uh, the Buddha's and all wise beings um, recipe for a happy life. So I actually want to read to you a a translation of the Metta Sutta, the the discourse on uh, loving kindness, which is... Uh, one of the most famous classic expressions of the Buddha's uh, advice on how to, how, to, um, how to find happiness. And it's impossible to find a perfect translation. It's one of those things we could spend a week discussing how to translate it. So, but here's, here's, here's one. If you are wise and want to reach the state of peace, then you should behave like this. Be upright. This is Uju, our friend. (laughs) Responsible, gentle, and humble. Be easily contented and need only a few things. Don't always be busy. Control your senses and don't be exclusively attached to only a few people. Don't do the slightest thing that a wise person could blame you for. You should always be thinking, may all beings be happy, whatever living beings there are, be they weak or strong, big or small, large or slender, living nearby or far away. Those who have already been born and those who have yet to be born, may all beings without exception be happy. Don't tell lies to each other. And don't think that anyone anywhere is of no value. Don't wish harm to anyone, not even when you're angry. Just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, so you should let the warmth of your heart go out to all beings. Let your thoughts of love go through the whole world with no ill will and no hate whether you're standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. So long as you're awake, you should develop this mindfulness. This, they say, is the noblest way to live. And if you don't fall into bad ways, but live well and develop insight, and are no longer attached to all the desires of the senses, then truly, you'll never need to be reborn in this world again. So being born in this world again really means to be born into this world of distress and dukkha. So this is described as the noblest way to live. And that's one, one translation for uh, what are called in Pali the Brahma-viharas, um, divine abodes or um, best dwelling places. And these are four qualities, the first of which is metta, this quality of loving-kindness or boundless friendliness that are interrelated. They're like four facets of a a single jewel. Uh, In a way, they're they're the differing tones or shades of universal empathy. And this word vihara in Brahma vihara means a, a dwelling place. It's actually the name for the, you know, the residence uh, in, in the monastic life you live in, a Vihara. And we've been talking about the body as a dwelling place, as a safe kind of refuge. And this is different from the refuge of mindfulness in the body, but it's also a place of refuge. This quality of mind or this intention of mind, it's a safe place to abide and actually in practice in our practice we've been kind of merging these two things so when we've been talking about saturating the body or pervading the body with a kindly awareness you know we're simultaneously abiding in the body and abiding in an attitude of friendliness of loving kindness or of acceptance so it also talked in that translation about sustaining this mindfulness. So metta is a, is a mindfulness practice. It's a, it's a sati or a recollection. This is another aspect of sati, this word for mindfulness that we haven't dwelt on so much, but that again is implicit in everything we're doing. Sati as the, as the um, practice of remembering of remembering what's important, of remembering what we know, of remembering our uh, best intention. And then there's this uh, injunction to protect this quality, just as a mother might protect her child with her life. And this can get a little confusing because we think that the sutta is asking us to be ready to lay down our life for every being and I don't think that's what this means. I think it's asking us to guard this quality of the heart, to protect and nurture this quality of the heart with the same care and vigilance that a mother would um, look after her child. So it's easy to talk about, you know, matter is available to us, isn't it, when there's a level of peace and ease in the heart, but that's not always what's going on. and when we start to orient to this quality it can reveal the ways in which the heart is actually feeling restricted Um, and it can reveal them for our care and attention so we've been, we haven't done much, but we've done uh, occasionally in the afternoon some meta-practice. And you may have done this on other occasions, you know, practiced loving-kindness meditation or befriending meditations using words and phrases. And isn't it true that so often what happens is it just provokes the opposite, or it reveals the opposite? Uh... And that doesn't mean it's not working. You know, this is partly what it does. It kind of flushes out or gives us a check on, well, what's actually happening in the mind? How much is that quality available to us at the moment? So there's sort of two ways to approach this. One is that we can remove obstacles. We can can remove hindrances from the mind. We can cultivate conditions in which the hindrances subside and this quality of friendliness of non-contention of non-ill will starts to naturally shine forth from the heart it's almost like we're kind of drawing back the curtains around this light that's already there uh, in the heart mind or we can intentionally cultivate it and that starts to displace or dispel some of the obstacles, just like the sun might dispel uh, the mist or the fog in the early morning. And cultivating it means a kind of gentle needs a kind of gentle leaning in a certain direction. So the the, the teachings often talk about inclining the mind, and I quite like that as a as an image. Just we we're not pushing; we're just. Gently inclining the mind in a certain direction and then things gather their own momentum. It's like if you start leaning, you know, gravity will eventually take you. And in inclining the mind in this way towards friendliness, we can use gestures. So I've suggested in the beginning, you know, inviting, the, the, just inviting a smile, sensing the touch of the hands, sometimes placing a hand on the heart or hands on the heart. These can actually start to evoke that uh, sense of warmth and friendliness. We can use phrases, we can use images, we can invite the image of people who just evoke and elicit this quality for us. So you we, we may have been using phrases like, you know, may I be, may you be safe and well, may you be peaceful, may you live with ease. Um, but really, any kind of phrases or words that help evoke this is a skillful way of cultivating metta in our meditative practice. So we can't force this. It's another, it's another thing for the shuttle diplomacy. Yeah. We set an intention, we kind of drop it in, and we uh, see what arises in response. And even these the so-called difficult people in our lives are an opportunity rather than, than an obstacle. They're a place that we can work the edges of this intention. So the same thing is true for all these four qualities of um, the four, these four immeasurables or Brahma-viharas. Like they can be for us just like meta a kind of orienting intention or a guiding star and they're really attitudes and not emotions so akincheno pointed out the difference between a, a, a thought and a mind state in that for a mind state to to take root sometimes you know or to either to move on in one way or another can take quite, quite a heave too they kind of things that set in for a while but we can a thought can be introduced into the mind very quickly and we can quick, we can introduce remind ourselves of the intention or the idea of one of these states simply with a thought, no matter what's going on in the heart. So I want to contrast the, the response of a reactive, or uh, con- contrast a reactive heart-mind and a responsive heart-mind in a couple of different situations. So the first one is what happens when we perceive somebody experiencing good fortune? Okay, what's, our, what's our relationship to happiness and to joy? So isn't it true that joy resonates? You know, if we see a dog out there wagging its tail, bounding around, enjoying itself, mostly we kind of light up inside, don't we? There's an immediate response. There's a natural empathic response in the heart or this afternoon when you were sharing you know in your groups and then back in the hall I found myself lighting up inside many times with um, appreciating you know the, the appreciating the enjoyment of what had been discovered and learned and appreciated but then when somebody gets something that we want or we also prize it's a little more complex than that isn't it you know so perhaps the sense that oh this person had an aha moment that seemed to have been really exciting and I didn't have one (laughs) (laughs) or that teaching seems to have really really helped them and I just found it a bit annoying and unrelatable (laughs) you know Or I really, really wanted to have a a one-to-one with Chris and there weren't any spaces left and that person got to have a meeting with Chris or with Akinciano or with Jaya and I didn't, you know. Or that person seems to have found the perfect spot to enjoy the sunset and I was just kind of putzing around and feeling annoyed, you know. Wasting my precious last evening at IMS, you know. So these are the responses when we see other people meeting with good fortune and we're feeling, you know, a little bit um, lacking in some way or just even the smidgen of discontent that's present in the mind. If the heart is feeling cramped or restricted or um, wanting, you know, th- these these kinds of responses are, are normal when we're not in a place of ease, satisfaction and contentment. So then the, the comparing mind often comes up and and we will experience maybe, you know, often it's a mixed experience, but there may be some envy or discontent in there. And the capacity for pleasure, for taking delight in the goodness around us is is limited we fall into this illusion that there's not enough happiness to go round. If, you know, if, if they're happy, that's somehow going to take away from my happiness. And this is, this is a kind of a delusion or an illusion because we're seeing the happiness as being located in the thing that, that's being had or being got rather than in the heart of the experiencer. But if our heart is available to resonate with the happiness in the heart of the experiencer, there's an infinite amount of happiness available to us. So this is the quality of mudita or appreciative joy. It's uh, often translated as altruistic joy. But that seems to me to be a bit limited because it's not really only about taking, the delight, taking delight in something that you've got and I haven't. Yeah. It's more it's a kind of unselfish joy. And I also think that we 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 need to practice and experience it in relation to ourselves as well. So altruistic again, that kind of eliminates that part of it, because we experience a kind of crampedness and a stinginess also towards ourselves sometimes. You know. Um, we kind of don't let ourselves take ownership of the blessings or of the good qualities in our lives or in ourselves. And the moment that I'm in a, in a kind of relational observing experience to, to what's going on in my mind, then one of these outward-looking, outward-oriented relationships are appropriate. It feels to me appropriate that I, I rejoice in the, the goodness that I'm observing in my life. And we need to appreciate our own good qualities for, the, for our trust and our confidence to grow. You know, so I think there's a difference between um, self-honesty uh, and self-deprecation, you know. And 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 I, the more I spend time here in the U.S. and meet with students and practitioners, the more I realize that self-deprecation isn't just a, a British trait, <laughs> you know. <laughs> We tend, to, we tend to be very reluctant to give ourselves credit for our good qualities and to kind of hone in on our, on our faults. So, so developing the, the capacity to rejoice in our own goodness is really important. So perhaps mudita, this quality, is, is maybe uh, also um, conceivable of as a spiritual joy rather than just this altruistic joy. A joy that's informed by the wisdom that understands what true sources of happiness are. So that as we get more, as wisdom grows, we tend to be more discerning about what we see as real sources of happiness in ourselves and one another. So we can begin to be really glad about other people's um, spiritual development, for example. So what happens when we, we notice somebody doing something good or wise or generous? You know? Maybe there's just joy about that and maybe there's a little bit of a hint of envy, but maybe that also points us in the direction of uh, what, why do we envy things? We envy them because they point to something we want to be cultivating for ourselves. So this cultivation of mudita is the antidote to its opposite, which is a sense of discontent or of envy. And again, just like metta, we can, we can use phrases to help orient our intention here. So there are many phrases we could use, but for an example, things like, I'm happy for your happiness, or may your good fortune grow and continue. So I wanted to just begin with the cultivation of mudita, which is actually normally listed third in these qualities because it feels to me that the, 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 the cultivation of joy is kind of essential to give us the resources to actually meet difficulty. The happy heart is better able to experience the second of the Brahma Viharas, which is compassion or karuna. So this is what happens when this clear, uh, receptive, resonating heart meets the experience of suffering in ourself or in another, that which feels the distress of suffering. So th- there's another word for compassion in Pali, which is anukampa, which actually means trembling along with. And that really reflects this this. Uh, meaning or this quality of, of resonance of resonating along and the opposite of compassion is cruelty which is taking delight in the suffering of another and generally it's only really in extreme circumstances that we take delight in the suffering of another or is it you know, maybe in <laughs> subtle ways, in subtle ways we might find it, you know, rather gratifying when somebody who's hurt us meets with some misfortune or somebody we envy suddenly loses what they have. Yeah? It's a kind of lack of empathy there, isn't there? But even when there isn't any of that, you know, what's what's the response of the heart to to suffering you know sometimes isn't it that you know when again when the heart is burdened and unavailable our response is tinged with aversion or with blame or with judgment or with fear And when we encounter, so again this afternoon, some, somebody was naming the predicament of you know having to be together with the suffering of difficult clients or difficult patients or difficult students or even our family and friends when they're suffering. As long as there's some kind of attachment or, or clinging or some wanting or some aversion, some confusion in our own heart then, you know, we can, we can, our response is going to be a mixed one. It's going to be mixed with some of these qualities of aversion or, or judgment or fear. But this isn't a problem, so long as we're seeing it, you know. And if we have, again, if we have this orientation towards the quality of compassion, we're going to see these things more clearly as they're arising. And then at other moments, the heart may be unobstructed. And then in those moments when the, the warmth of metta touches the tears of suffering, it's said that the rainbow of compassion arises. And actually, compassion in and of itself, it, it feels good, isn't it? There's a, another um, description of compassion that I love that comes from Pema Chodron, where she calls it... Daring to relax and move gently towards what scares us. So there is this, this natural quality of, of empathy in the heart. And a wish to alleviate harm arises. So compassion is not just feeling the suffering of one another, of ourselves. But it's that wish to step into action. To, to um, comfort and to, to alleviate uh, suffering as best we can. So in the walk- at the back of this hall and in the walking room as well, you might have noticed these statues of Kuan Yin, who's the Chinese version of uh, the Bodhisattva, the archetype of compassion, and there's also exists in the Tibetan school and other schools, but these, these are the Chinese sorts of statues. And you'll see that she's sitting with one, one foot down, which is this gesture of being ready to leap into action, to, to leap into service. So somebody this afternoon used the words assertive compassion, which I really liked you know fierce compassion compassion doesn't have to be soft and woolly it can be quite assertive and quite fierce so we it's part of our this practice to find ways to take compassion into action and this is not really so much what we do when we're sitting together on a meditation retreat but it's something that we can reflect on and and actively cultivate in our lives out there. And the, the world could use more of it, couldn't it? So, one way I've, of, of engaging with this as a practice, I'm thinking, is, is to maybe make some kind of intention around acting on our compassionate impulses. So one can make the same kind of determination as a practice around generosity, for example, is that, you know, we, we often, often we have a generous or a compassionate thought, but there's just kind of a little loss of uh, impetus or a, a something that kind of holds us back from actually uh, stepping out and, and acting on it, taking it forward. So how would it feel to actually act on more of our compassionate impulses? So it it takes this kind of push of energy, but I think it also leads to a greater sense of fulfillment. So this is an interesting experience, an interesting investigation is what holds us back. And just as I said, said, mudita for oneself feels important. So too does to have this self-compassion or compassion for the self. Some of us maybe have reservations about that term because, again, it feels a little bit narcissistic and is it not just inflating this sense of self? But actually, I think the reality is many of us are better at acknowledging the suffering of others than we are at acknowledging our own. And I hear again and again, you know, how actually um, bringing more self-compassion into practice is so um, supporting and so freeing. So we can cultivate in the same way as with with the meta-practice, we can cultivate compassion by introducing phrases and the phrases need not be so different from the meta-phrases. It's really just the context in which we're we're offering those phrases is different. So in bringing to mind beings who suffer and wish them freedom from harm and and, um, peace and healing, for example. Another practice is intentionally to imagine putting ourselves in the place of others and maybe also intentionally keeping ourselves informed about the, it, the experience of others who are less fortunate than us. Of course, quite often our, we, we kind of um, shy away from uh, ingesting too much information about people's suffering. <clears throat> And I think this is because many of us feel if we really orient to, we really take on board all the suffering that's out there that, that, that we will um, find ourselves in overwhelm or compassion fatigue. But compassion itself, this quality is tireless. And when, we, when we're experiencing fatigue, it's really that it's fallen into its near enemy of, of overwhelm. And so this is where we need the the fourth of these qualities, which is equanimity, because without it, we lose the capacity for the other three. And this is the quality that Chris mentioned this morning, is the quality of upeka or equanimity, which is found at the end of many of these lists. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening, and it's the fourth of these Brahma-viharas because it's really a very mature quality of the heart. So Chris mentioned that the, uh, the, the also the other, another term for equanimity is this term Tatra Majatata, which is standing in the midst of our experience, this capacity to stand in the midst of the different winds and changes of life. Or... Uh, upeka itself, which is the word for equanimity as a brahma vihara, uh, means looking over so a sense of having a real perspective on uh, events and experiences so christina when she when she introduces practice at the beginning of retreats, she very often talks about how her early teachers um, told her that for meditation one should find a secluded place with long views so somewhere where we're sheltered enough from, from disturbance and from circumstance and somewhere where are also literally and metaphorically metaphorically but also, also literally we can really get a wide perspective on things She also uses a definition of mindfulness, which is implicitly filled with this quality of equanimity. She calls it the willingness and the capacity to be equally near to all events and experiences with kindness, curiosity, and discernment. So you can see how all these qualities that we've named, the, the kindness... Um, the discernment, this this curiosity, investigation—they all kind of converge, actually, in mindfulness, in this conscious, non-reactive relationship to our experience. At Upeka, this quality of being able to stand firm in the midst of experience, is is really valuable in facing. what what are called the eight worldly winds the worldly vicissitudes constantly rising and falling tides of pleasure and pain, gain and loss uh, praise and blame and fame and disrepute that assail all of us Uh, these things are so much uh, out of our control and yet equanimity um, enables us to stand firm in the midst of them and this is really the fruit of recognising the way things are, recognising that there's things are in a constant process of change um, that this fact that they're in a constant process of change means looking for lasting happiness and stability there uh, is a fruitless task, this Um, sense of dukkha of the inherent unsatisfactoriness of things and then realizing that they're not me or mine that they're beyond my control it's recognizing these three characteristics that chris named yesterday as the basis of equanimity So in cultivating equanimity as an orienting principle, it's really helpful, I think, to use, to orient to certain phrases or wisdom reflections. So some examples of these would be things like, um, may I embrace change with stillness and calm? Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. And then especially in relation to, say, our children or our loved ones, remembering that much as we want it, we, we would like to control uh, their choices and their happiness and suffering, that we can't do this. You know, so reflection, reflecting that all beings have their own journey. Perhaps something like, you know, I care for you but you are in charge of your own choices and I can't make those choices for you. How much energy do we invest wanting to control or to manage one another's lives, Uh, the lives of people we care about, the lives of people we feel responsible for? Uh, But wisdom really asks us to take a step back from that and to see the limits of our powers to intervene. So another equanimity reflection might be the reflection that things are as they are. They couldn't be otherwise. And you notice we can say that in a kind of dismissive way. (laughs) Or we can say that with a kind of quality of wisdom and acceptance there. So again, this isn't just in the words. It's in the attitude or the orientation. So another, another way in which equanimity is often called for is just in face of the general uncertainties of life. There may be particularly times in our life or situations where we're really faced with the prospect of a lot of change and we don't know how it's going to turn out and we really have to be find a way of being in a place of not knowing without that destabilizing us so again there's a a title of another book by Pema Chodron which I love as a title which is is about being comfortable with uncertainty Uh, or this may I rest in not knowing and then there's a you know, the practice of all these things, these grounding tools that we've been developing over the last few days that we've been sharing and practicing together are really, really supportive for the development of this quality of equanimity. This ability not to be buffeted around by the ups and downs, the changing experiences of pain and pleasure. And this quality of equanimity is is also... Um, really the enabler of the, the flourishing of the other three qualities. It stops them tipping into what are sometimes called their near enemies. So all these four, four qualities, these four Brahma Viharas have what are known as near enemies, qualities that closely resemble them but aren't quite, quite that. So when metta or loving kindness has a stickiness of attachment to it, of kind of wanting... You know, wanting something from the, the being to whom we're feeling, feeling love or, um, or friendliness. Equanimity, this recognition of that, this respecting of their autonomy actually stops uh, the metta from tipping into that kind of sticky kind of love. Mudita or, or the joy can, can kind of tip into a kind of intoxication you know, a kind of giddy sort of joy that loses the perspective of actually the changing nature, changing and conditioned nature of the happiness that's there. And as I said before, with with compassion, it can so easily tip into overwhelm or grief. But this perspective of equanimity that recognizes that which is possible to control and that which is not possible to control. Um, helps to helps to um, to mitigate against that and then also equanimity itself has a near en- enemy which is the quality of indifference so you know this is sometimes people are kind of suspicious of equanimity because it sounds a little bit like indifference or you know um, kind of a, a, a distancing or a lack of contact but really the, this quality of equanimity that, uh, that I've been naming as a Brahma Vihara is something that's very richly responsive it's like the, the compassion and the love are just right there at its side and it's just available to move in any direction it's a quality of connection rather than of disconnection so Kuan Yin out there, uh, the archetype of compassion, is actually an embodiment of both uh, equanimity and, um, and, a, and a profound understanding of emptiness. So the, the name of Kuan Yin in Chinese is one who listens to the, world, the sounds of the world at ease. an embodiment of both this wisdom and of compassion. As Chris said, quoting um, Nisargadatta, wisdom says I'm nothing, compassion says I'm everything, and between these two shores, the life of the awakened ones flows. So this growing freedom from reactivity that we're cultivating it it leads to more choice and that I think leads to responsibility Uh, as our capacity grows we have a kind of responsibility to look outwards and to live intentionally so we can bear, bear these qualities in mind orient to them and cultivate them, and we can cultivate them as antidotes to their opposites. So this is what the Buddha said to his own son. He said, Rahula, develop meditation on loving-kindness, for when you develop meditation on loving-kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. Develop meditation on compassion, for when you develop meditation on compassion, any cruelty will be abandoned. Develop meditation on altruistic joy, for when you develop meditation on altruistic or appreciative joy, any discontent will be abandoned. Develop meditation on equanimity, for when you develop meditation on equanimity, any aversion will be abandoned. And how do how is this done? So in the in the early teachings, in the early discourses, that, that most of these kind of practices, using phrases and things that we that we have, have, have uh, were developed much later. Um, and the Buddha himself doesn't give many specific instructions about how to develop these qualities as meditations. Um, there's the the sutta that I read to you earlier about the development of loving kindness but as a a meditative practice this is what he says he says a practitioner abides pervading one quarter as in one direction with a mind imbued with loving kindness likewise the second the third and the fourth above below around and everywhere to all beings without exception They abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. The image is used of being like a, a blower of a conch who stands on the top of a high mountain, so this was a way that they would um, send messages across long distances in ancient northern India.' So this conch blower blowing the conch in all directions, and just like this the the quality of these these attitudes is radiating out from the unobstructed heart and creating a field into which. Uh, beings will come another another image um, from uh, Analia Bhikkhu who's the monk that we've quoted sometimes is the image of the sun that takes on different aspects at different times of day so if you think of this uh, unobstructed radiant heart as being like the sun then the quality of Joy might be like the sun in the early morning when it's kind of invitingly touching everything and things are sparkling with a kind of freshness. And then the midday sun would be um, the quality of metta that's shining equally on all things everywhere. The warmth of the evening sun, that warm glow and the slight kind of wistfulness of the sun as it's setting would be like the quality of compassion that is willing to touch uh, the sadness of life. And then equanimity would be like the full moon that is coolly reflecting the light of the sun in the, in the night sky. So that it takes on different aspects, different times of day or in different conditions, but it's still the same quality of the clear and radiant and responsive heart. So I think that when the, when the heart is fluent in these kinds of qualities, then the absence of reactivity doesn't entail a loss of joy. Maybe the nature of the experience of joy changes, So it's less dependent on the sort of outer circumstances that give us pleasant or pleasant stimuli or exciting experiences. And and it's not even that we don't experience sense pleasures. They just don't trigger craving and discontent in the same way. And instead, there's this joy that becomes available from the depths of the mind. And when we look at examples of people who've really practiced so to me, an, a, an obvious example that comes to mind is the Dalai Lama. You know, these people are really radiant and joyful beings. It's also Matthieu Ricard, the, one of the Dalai Lama's students, the French monk who's done all the tests on, who's considered to be the world's happiest man. Yeah. <laughs> according to the tests that have been done. Or I think of Ajahn Chah, who was my teacher's teacher, the Thai monk, who was an, an incredibly joyful, humorous being. Or Deepama, whose picture is in the M200 upstairs, who was this wonderful um, practitioner, laywoman practitioner, teacher of Joseph and Sharon and others. There's a beautiful book about her in the, um, in the bookstore here, if you're interested. It's a very, very joyful being. And so much so that people kind of gravitate towards these people, because it feels good to be in their presence. So to just to end with a, a couple of words from Deepa Ma herself. <clears throat> who says, there's there's so much sameness in ordinary life. You see everything through the same lenses of greed, of hatred and delusion. But when greed, hatred and delusion are not present, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Now, every moment, every day, is full of zest. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your attention, your kind attention, and we'll have some walking now and meet again in half an hour for our last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.